Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. of Wise Up Governance and Boards for 2021. We hope that you all had a great Christmas break and that 2021 is a fabulous year. Today we're joined by Martin Pretty. Martin established Equitable Investors and launched its first fund in 2017 after serving four years as an investment manager at Thorny Investment Group. Martin is also a non-executive director of Centrepoint Alliance Limited, ASX CAF, a non-institutional wealth advice business, Scout Security Limited, ASX SCT, and MGM Wireless Limited. Prior to joining Thorny Investments as their investment manager, Martin headed equities research teams at both Bell Potter and Investors First. Earlier in his career, Martin was a finance journalist for the Australian Financial Review and InvestorWeb and subsequently contributed to publications including The Australian, Smart Investor and Eureka Report. Welcome, Martin. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Ainsley. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year to you too. So tell us a bit about your journey to getting to this point in your career, Martin. um, As you've just read out, it sounds better when you read it out than when I I think about it in my head. Uh, It's not not the standard journey. when I was 18 years old, I probably didn't envisage that I'd be running an investment fund with a bent on small caps. Um, I probably was focused on becoming a journalist and I had an uncle who was a successful journalist and um, probably influenced me and he was a financial review writer at one point in time and has gone back there since. Um, so my entree into the business and finance world was through the lens of a journalist and that, that is a fantastic way to meet a lot of people, um, to crash course yourself on all kinds of industries, um, financial concepts, um, an excuse to talk to anyone and ask any kind of question. So that was a very important part of um, the development of my, my career, which I, I look back on fondly, and kind of out of that pointed me in the direction of getting more into the doing rather than the reporting. Uh, which ended up with me getting into the world of finance, equities research and investment. And um, that, that's it in a nutshell. And how did you find that world, Martin, um, in terms of equities research and um, investment manager? How did I find that world? Uh, it's, it's a never-changing world. Um, there's always something happening. Um, but... So I guess compared to journalism, in the world of journalism, today's news story, today's headline is tomorrow's fish and chip wrapping. Um, when, when you're focusing on an investment opportunity, there's a longer, more rewarding um, element to it where, you know, you're doing your homework, you're um, carefully analysing and picking your investment opportunities. And you, once you're committed to them, then you're following them, um, supporting them, um, tr- trying to maximise the outcome and that can be years in the making at times and so so the reward is probably um, greater and the, the journey is probably more emotional than what you get in journalism. In terms of the industry itself, there, there's a wide array of characters, uh, there, there's larger than life people, um, 
like a director of my company and a, my form, my original boss, I guess, in a way, when I joined the stockbroking world as a research analyst, Hugh Robertson, who's uh, one of the greatest characters I've ever seen and has an amazing ability to pick the companies and raise capital and get investors' confidence. Um, the same goes to my, my time at Thorny and working with Alex Weisselitz and, you know, you observe the way he operates and how he can open a 200-page document of a shareholder scheme or something like that and you can open it the right page and find the problem and leave you looking a bit silly because you haven't found it yourself. So you learn very quickly from very sharp, smart people like that, which there are plenty of. Then there's also charlatans in the industry. Um, there's all, plenty of people looking for a fast buck at someone else's expense as well and um, try, trying to navigate yourself around that is always an interesting journey. And so what was the catalyst and what's the philosophy, Martin, behind equitable investors? Okay, so so my time in both on the research side and working with Thorny Investments, I guess the, the what I learned from working with the people that I worked with was that the best opportunities in the way I see the world, everyone's got a different view, but the way I see the world is when you invest in smaller businesses with a lot more upside uh, in terms of the potential growth and value uplift for those businesses, where you can get to know the businesses and get close to the people running those businesses um, rather than sitting there at a screen and just reading ASX announcements and not really having the context of what's behind them or the quality of the people or the real ambitions driving it. And um, also part, part of that philosophy is to get involved and, you know, where you can assist the company, um, communicate with the company to ensure that they're focused on the things you believe they should be focused on or they're aware of the opportunities that you can see. Um, I, I believe that over time we've seen that that's paid off in spades in terms of being not necessarily an activist investor, not trying to um, oppose current regimes or break things apart, but to be involved and be constructive and try and um, collectively work for value maximisation. So that's probably the philosophy behind equitable investors and our fund, Dragonfly Fund, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I sit on a couple of boards and two of those are investments in our portfolio where we have got involved and we're constructively engaged in, um, you know, maximising value and helping those companies on their journey and adding value where we can, which is quite often around capital markets knowledge because entrepreneurs and business founders are not born with an understanding of how the financial markets world works. And uh, there's, there's often, as I mentioned earlier, there's plenty of charlatans and there's plenty of ways you can lose your way in the ASX listed world and, and beforehand when you're raising earlier funding as well. So talking about um, smaller businesses, Martin, with um, the end of 2020, it's seen a um, large run-on of ASX-listed entities. I think there was 50 in December alone. And there was a quite a significant increase in listing costs of, you know, 30-plus percent compared to the prior year. As a small business, that cost would sort of, um, you know, be a barrier to entry for some companies in terms of attracting different um, investment opportunity and other capital. There's obviously other options for smaller businesses. Can you talk us through what some of those might look like? 
Sure. So I guess we're probably talking more start-up and scale-up phase. Um, in, in Australia, we haven't had a history of long, deep venture capital funding the way the US has and even Europe has. And you go back in time, we even had a second board of the ASX where earlier stage companies could list um, with lighter regulation. And we do to this day have companies list at a much earlier stage in their development and their life than you would see in some other developed markets. But there are, there are alternatives and the alternatives are um, venture capital funding, strategic investment, family offices, um, offshore funds, and it, I guess it's a, it's a real hustle. And my experience with unlisted companies is, is in, unless they're onto something really amazing that everyone can see without doing much homework, um, you need to kiss a lot of frogs in terms of investors and find the right <laughs> investors. Um, it it's is kissing frogs. Visual. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, the visual. <laughs> It's the same running a fund. You, you know, you see, you see a lot. You see multiples of, of the amount of potential investors as opposed to the investors who end up making meaningful contributions. Um, and that's just part of life raising capital that you've got to accept and um, adapt to, and just know that you, you're not going to convert every investor. You may not convert fifty percent of the investors, but you um, hone hone your story and um, take on advice and feedback from those you don't convert to learn about what different investors are looking for. And, you know, every investor is different as well. You, you will find investors who just don't fit what you're about, um, your product, your business, your values, your strategy, and you'll find other investors are completely in sync with that. Now, from the outside looking in, um, Martin, what sort of tips could you give to startups on um, nailing their investor pitch? Because it can be quite a daunting task for um, these startups yep. and a lot of them are founders and a lot of them have very lean teams with minimal resources. And so what sort of tips could you give to them? Yep, so, so every, every investor is different, but the way I would look at it and my advice generally would be to keep it simple um, you don't want to have a 55-page deck detailing every everything you can cram in and put that in front of an investor and hope they'll just consume that and get excited. You want to keep it simple. They, they want to know who you are. They want to know who they're backing. Um, so you, you want to put that on the table up front and who you've got behind you. And they want to know what your vision is. They want to know how committed you are. Um, they obviously wants to know what work to date's gone in, into it. And I guess, you know, there's various models out there on how to go about it, but it's really what is what is the opportunity? What, why and why do you have a um, solution that will make sense to, to take hold of that opportunity? And, and, you know, clearly, say, if we stick to tech, clearly it, it's, if there's an opportunity and you're the right person, you've got the right people to develop, that um, platform or you've got the right strategic partner. Or, but it's also, it's always going to come back to the people. Are you people who are driven? Are you committed? Um, I think that's, whether you're a startup or, or a listed company, that's always key. So Martin, with your um, Dragonfly Fund, you're very ESG focused. How are you choosing the funds? The, the company's going into that oh, fund. Sorry, sorry, Deb, I missed Sorry, from, uh, with your Dragonfly Fund, 
you're yep. ES, very much ESG focused. How are you choosing the companies that go into your fund? Um, so when it comes to ESG, so we'll take a, a holistic view. So we don't go around advertising that we are an ESG fund. We're a fund that's trying to um, find the best opportunities. But the way ESG plays into that is the, that you're looking at valuations of companies. And, you know, if a company's not doing the right thing, um, if the company has a social problem or doesn't have a social license to operate, you know, how much can you value that company at? Um, what, what's the long-term value of a company like that? You would have to be questioning what the direction is and what could happen to it in the future with regulation, um, consumer or customer acceptance. And um, the lens we would look through every investment is what what, he, what is the substance to this business? And if you're doing the wrong thing, you're probably lacking some of that substance. And um, so, you know, we wouldn't touch... So, we, for example, we rule out mining. It's not because I have a, a philosophic view that no mining can be um, so. It's because we don't under, we don't understand and have the um, knowledge. We're not geos, but um, obviously, a lot of things you have been impressed about poor performance by mining companies, considering you know Rio Tinto and the Aboriginal cave situation, or um, what happened in Brazil with the dams a few years ago with the iron ore companies. And so you've got to question what does that do for the acceptance of those companies in regions with those governments, with the people, and what's the cost to them to restitute that and change, um, their, change, change their perception within the communities that they operate. I think, too, you have to look at that as... Um you know, key learning examples and um, how going forward boards can potentially attract more cultural diversity um, on the board and would that have happened if there was, say, a Aboriginal representation on that board um, or maybe even down to the subcommittee levels or uh, middle management, would those sorts of things have still occurred? Um, in terms uh, of... Oh, you go. Sorry, you go. No. Uh, I was going to ask, in terms of um, investment opportunities, Martin, um, obviously we're coming up to the three-year mark with ASIC approving crowdsource funding and um, so January 2018, I think that was, and now that's three years on. How are you seeing that space um, sort of play out, uh, you know, the likes of virtual, et cetera, uh, with their crowdsource funding campaigns? Um, generally, the, the crowd crowdfunding is a little bit below where we would play as investors. So we, within our Dragonfly fund, we probably say 80% is listed and mostly micro cap, and then 20% is unlisted. Um, and we have some pretty early stage businesses in there. Um, well, one in particular is a Queensland-based insurance company called Upshore, which is probably the earliest stage business we've got in there. Um, but I do keep an eye on crowdfunding and always think of it as a solution. And we do work with some um, early stage companies to, to help them along the journey and keep an interest in what they're doing. And crowdfunding is definitely a very valid option. Um, you know, not in the fund, just, you know, just personally, I made a small investment in a virtual crowdfunding opportunity last week because I really like the uh, founder. I really like what they're doing. Um, it's it's very early for us, but there's definitely a place for it, and it's great that these companies can 
find and they like this to get the support from a wide community that historically would not have been easily tapped or accessed. Yeah, so obviously um, organisations are using that as a, a capital stepping stone for growth. In terms of um, board and board establishment, management establishment, how do you find, um, for from an investor perspective, what would you be looking for from a start-up in terms of um, an advisory board versus a governing board and what are the sort of... Um, governance and reporting expectations there from an investment perspective? Sure, for, for a startup, um, I guess the first thing is just open lines of communication and that's got to be the underlying principle. Um, I, I think it's a great opportunity if a company can get an advisory board that includes its investors um, as, as a key, key participants in that and that it, say, regularly meets... I would say on a monthly basis and updates on what the opportunities are, what the, what the threats are, what's gone well, what's gone wrong. Um, but certainly don't need to be delivering 100, 200 page documents. It's, it's more about um, engagement and openness. And also, you know, it's a two way street. You don't just sit on an advisory board or as a, as a key investor, just to sit there and soak up information. You're, you're there to, uh, contribute because you're interested in the greater good of that business for your own benefit when it comes to valuing that business and growing that business. And so you're, you're looking for opportunities for management to engage with you and and help you help them, tell them where they need help, um, tell, have them tell you how, how you can help drive their business. And uh, Martin, with 2020 now behind us, what are some of the... Um key challenges coming out of 2020 and into 2021 you've come across on the boards that you sit in on? Key challenges going to 2021? Well, I think, so where we play and what we invest in, it's, it tends to be very company specific. Um, obviously, we've gone for a crazy year where I guess what's been proven is you can't, you can't predict even in 12 months what, what the world's got in store for you. Um, I've been involved in businesses that have benefited benefited greatly from what's happened with COVID. Um, and I've been involved in businesses that have had some blips um, in demand and have recovered quickly. And so if we look at our fund, what happened with our fund year to date at the end of March, I think we were down 30%. And thereafter up 50 something percent and, you know, in the money for the year. And um, probably at the start of the year, you, you would have thought we'd, you predict equities returns 10% and we want to do better than that. After March, you're probably going to cut your wrists. Um, so I guess that there's, there's a moral in there that you don't know and you've got to be prepared. And one one key point I've been making recently is about capital. So if you got to March, you probably, as a small company, were a bit worried about how you would raise money. Certainly as an investor, I was looking through my portfolio um, trying to make sure I had businesses that could be resilient when capital markets are closed. And you saw the big companies come in with deeply discounted uh, raisings, soaking up all the capital in the market in April, May. And you were probably becoming even more worried as a small company that capital was not going to be there necessarily. It's certainly not at an um, acceptable price. But the time marched on, you know, the market sentiment recovered. You get to... December, and I think we've now had 40% more ASX capital raisings than we had a year ago. Um, I think it's over a thousand 
companies. So there's been over a thousand raisings. So when you've got about 2000 listed companies, that's a fair amount of the market that has been able to access capital and should have put that issue to bed for now, if they took their opportunity. And I've been involved with the companies I'm on the board of, we've raised money um, in June, July, and again, in a few months ago from one of the other companies to position them well for the year ahead. Uh, so I guess the lesson going into the new year is you just don't know. You, you need to be prepared for all potential outcomes. Hopefully you are coming into the new year with a good capital position given what's transpired over the last six months or so. Um, and you're ready to take advantage of the opportunities that are available to you. Yes, great advice. That strength of the balance sheet going forward is really where um, organisations need to reprioritise. In terms of um, the strategic plan, Martin, there's you know a bit of debate around um, the five-year plans now out the window and that there's sort of not really a place for them anymore um, and that sort of three-year strategic plans are a lot more palatable. How are you seeing that in, um, in your roles? Um, it depends on the business again. I mean, f- for a small startup business, you, five, five years is probably what you strategically want to get to. So you'd have your objectives about what, what, what the end game is. And I think that's important to have in your mind. And, you know, if you're confident enough to communicate it with your investors that this is, this is our goal, this is where we want to get to, and map backwards how we plan to get there. Um, but in terms of more detailed um, strategies, I, I think three years is probably going to be a more realistic approach to actually a detailed strategy on on what the execution is going to be and tracking that execution um, to see if we're behind or ahead. Um, I'm just trying to think of, of an example. So I, I sit on the board of a company, Scout Security. Um, Scout Security is based in Chicago, and they created a software platform and the hardware for you to have DIY home security monitored by professionals. So you have a real security company on the back end that you control from an app on your phone. And that company probably entering entering 2020 was probably running as lean as it could on a small capital base. It's now taken advantage of the markets and added some good institutional investors that we're really pleased to have on board and put the company in a position where it now has the capital it needs to go ahead with confidence for the next few years. Now, what's on their horizon is they've got large white-label customers, so a global security company called Prosegur, that you will, you will see their security trucks driving around Australian cities. They're listed in Spain. Uh, they're big in most of the Latin uh, Spanish-speaking world. And so they're poised to start rolling out Scout's product in their first Spanish-speaking market um, soon, and that's been publicly announced. And they've also announced um, a deal with a US telco to roll out, and there's some other things that they've discussed, um, not, necess- not necessarily naming the partners, but there are a pipeline of opportunities that they need to execute against. And so the timelines for that are not three years, the timelines for that are basically next year. And success against those timelines will dictate probably what happens next in the two years after that. So I guess it, it can be company specific. I think five years is a great to have a vision of where you want to get to because it helps set your mindset and your approach. But 
um, when you get into the nitty gritty, it can often be a shorter time frame. And how, um, like in a sort of global go-to-market strategy like that, uh, Martin, that you mentioned, how are you ensuring um, from a board perspective governance around that um, in terms of where there may be a disconnect at the middle management level? Um, one of the great things about small companies is they're pretty flat. Um, so I, I can't say I personally know every single person in the company, but there's not much um, distance between the board and, and the guys who are executing. And, you know, we, we will hear from them in board meetings from time to time. And um, the, the, um, the responsibilities and the disciplines, are, they're, they're not so detached that you can't track them. You know who's responsible for what. Um, it, the CEO will be the intermediary, of course, but you know we, he, he's, he's ultimately responsible. Uh, but it's very quickly, you can very quickly draw the lines of accountability from him to the next layer as well. Um, I, I can imagine that when you're on the board of a large multinational, that that's going to get much more complicated. You, you, you're going to see multiple lines of command, and you're going to lose some of that. And I've seen that in other businesses I've been involved in, where it's not always clear what's happening several layers below the, uh, the, the C-suite. And, you know, the C-suite, obviously, they, they have their view of the world and it can be the case from time to time that the C-suite wants the board to see it through rose-coloured glasses because it suits them. And I guess one of the roles of the board, in my view, is to ensure that you can, you can see through that and you get um, access to other people in the business and you get different points of view to give you a more rounded view on where the business is at and what what um, successes and failures and opportunities and threats there may be that you're not seeing in board packs or um, hearing about every other week. So what's 2021 got in store for you, Martin? Um, where can we start? So being a Melbourneian, 2021 hopefully has in store for me not one of the world's longest lockdowns. <laughs> So that'll be, that'll be a fantastic start. Um, we're looking forward to a much better year, touch wood, than last year for you know, friends, families, communities, businesses, being able to interact with each other. Uh, we've, I spent most of the year on Zoom and Teams, and that's great and functional, but you know nothing beats being able to sit over a coffee or, or a, even a cold beer or, or lunch or whatever it is and actually talking face-to-face with the people that you're engaging with and looking to invest with or looking to have invest in what you're doing. And it's also a lot easier than trying to convince someone of something over, over Zoom or Teams. So I've got um, an associate who's established in a venture capital fund with a really great special niche. And he was probably going to launch six months ago, but because, because of all the issues that we've just said, he's basically put it on the back burner to the new year. Um, and so I'm looking forward to everyone in, our, in what we do, having a uh, much more open, uh, communicative, uh, community-minded opportunity next year to link with people and connect with people. For us as a business, um, our, our fund's been starting to hit its straps lately, so we're entering the year with a, with a bit of steam behind us. Um, we've got some exciting things we believe in terms of what's in our portfolio um, particularly for, for you Queenslanders, we've got an unlisted company called Eloom, which has got a bit of press in Queensland lately. The Queensland government's just given it some money. 
Um, the US government has just given it 30 million US to ramp up its COVID tests. And um, that, that looks like a really exciting opportunity for us. And we hold it at cost, but we believe it could be, you know, could be, we can't, we can't bank it any other way, but we think it could be worth a lot more than what we invested in at the first place. Um, even based on the fact that those the US government's been so committed to it and they're currently um, accessing FDA approval to get their home COVID test. So it's basically something you can buy off the shelf and take it home and test yourself um, going soon. So we're excited. That's a case example of something we're excited about. Uh, we're excited about Scout Technologies, which are Scout Securities, which I just mentioned to you for the reasons of that, that roll up. So we think there's a lot of bunch, good things in our portfolio to be excited about. Um, and, we're, and, and for those businesses themselves that I'm on the board of, the other one which you mentioned at the start was MGM Wireless, which is now named Space Talk. And Space Talk's a great story. We don't own enough of it for a few reasons. And it's, it's hard when you're a director to find opportunities to, to buy and buy more. But Space Talk is an Australian company that has developed an app and wearables solution to help families be secure with monitoring their children or the elderly. And so it's, it's had really phenomenal growth with its Space Talk watch, its first generation watch, which kids can wear and use as a phone and keep in contact with their family and friends, depending on what their parents, basically their parents have control over who they can communicate with and visibility on it, uh, which one of my kids has. And we've just launched the next generation of that watch we announced last week. And we've also recently announced one for seniors which, you know, there's a lot of interest in. Um, so we're really excited about where that could go as well. Yeah, that's a really great idea, isn't it? We need one for the dog as well. <laughs> or the husband <laughs> at five o'clock on Friday that just disappears after golf. <laughs> um, so in terms of um, ESG options out there, um, Martin, Obviously, there's different things like WAMs, future funds and all those sorts of things. And you've got Larry um, Fink with his BlackRock letter every year that kind of talks to those sort of ethical investment opportunities. The emergence of um, younger retail investors that are looking for more ethical investment opportunities, how are you seeing that affect your space? Yeah, it's pretty. It's very interesting, especially in the micro cap. So in our fund, we're all investing... You know, we have company, we can invest in the largest company that we're excited by, but most of the companies we invest in will be quite small. And that could be sub 10 million market cap. And when you get down in that area, there's not a lot of institutional buying and selling. And um, the marginal buyer basically is quite often the retail investor. So when you get um, these new platforms with low brokerage, potentially leverage, um, especially in COVID lockdown times where people don't have as many things to do and start to get engaged in trading and the opportunity to make profits in a frothy market like we have seen in 2020, it, they, they can dictate the day-to-day -day price of your stocks and they can dictate um, to some extent what your performance is for the month if they've moved some of those stocks around because they've got excited by some of them. Or they've, So a great example for us is a company called Identity, ID8. Um, ID8 is in RegTech and they have a technology solution for tagging financial transactions with the information you would need for anti-money laundering and know your client. And in fact, today they've just announced that they've received a US patent for their technology. 
Um, but that stock price, you know, we participated in a placement, I think it was from memory, it was at eight cents early in the year and thought that that's a very low price. We were really excited about that. Um, not too long later, it's suddenly at 40 odd cents, 40 plus. And, you know, there are good things happening, but for that kind of surge, clearly retail clients had got onto the story of reg tech financial transactions and really got excited and driven it up high. Um, and it was unsustainable when it came back uh, to the twenties and then the teens. So we um, obviously took advantage. We, we did the right thing because we, we took some of our profits at the top. We maintained a core cool position when it came back. Um, we've reloaded and uh, recommitted to that investment. But you can't always execute like that. And you can find yourself in situations where it goes the other way. Uh, if you got into a stop and it turns out that that was full of retail investors and they jump out because things haven't quite panned out the way they thought. And I'm just trying to think of an example of that was a battery technology company where I believe, not, not one we're invested in, but I believe there was a great hope that they would announce something with Tesla as a partner on Tesla's great battery day. And that didn't happen and the stock just imploded. And that, that no reasonable person who had done their homework, I believe, would have a, expected that to be had to occur on that day and B, had the valuation changed so dramatically. But when you had retail investors who are trading based more on what everyone else is saying and on the sentiments and the momentum rather than what they understand about the business, you've, you've got to be wary. So how can um, businesses control that sort of messaging better, Martin, so that they're... Um you know, trying to eradicate some of this miscommunication um, at the younger retail investment perspective? Yeah, well, I think regular communication, but so there's, there's probably too much communication in the case of some businesses and there's probably some cynical um, advisors who push companies to over-communicate and potentially exaggerate, which I think we've seen the ASX in the last 12 months really try and clamp down. We're seeing companies put into multiple halts or um, have to revise their announcements or add to their announcements to clarify what they really mean when, when, when they announce something. Um, my view would be that you tell your story and you tell your story regularly and you use the same metrics and you use them. You don't change the metrics you use. You stay consistent in the message. You tell people when something significant has happened, when something material has happened. And there's a great debate, you know, I've experienced as a director about what is material, and it's not always a number. Maybe your revenue is not going to jump 10% or more from an announcement, but if it's a strategic partner, even if it's a small contract, that, that may be meaningful, and you, sh you should be reporting that to, to investors, but you also shouldn't be exaggerating the meaning of it either, um, because it's ultimately it will backfire on you. Maybe, maybe you'll be able to get a capital raising, raising away based on pumping up some news, but it will backfire and you'll find yourself with a stock price that's abandoned in, in, in the future if you behave like that. Uh, so, so, yeah, honesty, openness, um, regularity, that, that, that would be my keys. Just about getting that balance right, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes I think management uh, mis uh, confused the ASX uh, platform as a... A marketing, marketing. tool. <laughs> um, so in terms of um, investment um, in some of these companies, Martin, is there a preference over debt versus equity model? 
Uh, So are we talking about startup businesses using debt? Yeah, or whether it's a startup or whether it's actually um, taking a position in some of these companies from a fund perspective, is there a preference over whether you take a debt or an equity position? As as an investor, I like to invest in companies that have low to no debt. And I think having no debt or having cash on the balance sheet gives you options. And so people will say to optimise your capital structure and your cost of capital, you should have an allocation to debt, especially when interest rates are as low as they are. But I would argue that there's there's an optionality value in not having debt that you should consider when you're looking at a company. The fact that you don't have debt means that you can borrow if you have a really good opportunity to buy a business or invest in expansion plan that you would not be able to do if you were already geared. Uh, so, so my preference as an investor coming in is I prefer uh, equity-funded company. In terms of what we would take as a position, we, we do do convertible notes and we invest in convertible notes from time to time because we like the equity opportunity. But the convertible note as an investor gives us some security on the downside that you know, that we may see that there are risks that we'd hope to avoid and you benefit in the upside, limit the downside and hopefully run wins. And I see that for, from a company perspective, that can work when your share price is below where you believe it should be. And I, I can go back to that Scout security example where Scout had a particularly low share price mid-year, uh, lower than we like it to be. And the way we raised money was through a convertible note that I participated in, and that was before I joined the board of Scout. And it was structured so that the conversion price was substantially higher than the current share price. And so from a company view, we weren't diluting shareholders at a low price. Um, From the investor view, we were accepting that the company company's position at the share price was lower than it could be, but we were getting the payoff that we were protected on the downside as well. And I think that can be a win-win when it's structured correctly. Uh, there are times when convertible notes are structured clearly in the favour of the investor and you, you hear the term death spiral occasionally thrown around and those kind of instruments you just want to stay a mere miles away from if you are a company or if you are an investor in those companies. Uh, so, so I guess the answer for me is equity is bread and butter, but convertible notes and um, debt-style debt security definitely have a place. And in terms of um, founders, startups, etc., how are you finding their um, remuneration model in terms of are they incentivising through um, equity, etc.? Yeah, I guess every case is always different, but in most um, cases I would come across, the founders are not taking large amounts of money in salary. In fact, they're generally taking very low amounts or in cases, some cases none off the table at all, depending on their stage. And, um, you know, from, from an investor, you you admire that and you you see the conviction they have that they're, they're committing their time and energy and resources in growing the equity value of their business. Um, there is a point, though, where you also want to make sure your executive doesn't have to worry about, you know, eating and um, providing for their families and um, being able to enjoy a bit of downtime. So there's a balancing act there. So you, you want to see your executives, you know, remunerated in early early stages enough that they're not worried about their, their next meal or their, their next ticket to the movies or the next holiday. 
Um, but you definitely love to see founders and entrepreneurs and executives who are committed to the equity value. No worries. And if, um, do you have any sort of, I guess, top tips for um, startups that might be looking to attract um, different investment opportunities? Uh, how should they be positioning themselves and what's the sort of pre-planning works that they need to be uh, doing before actually um, hitting the market? Um, so I guess going back to some of the comments we made earlier, you, very few people are experts in all fields. And if you're a founder of a tech business or a consumer products business or whatever it might be, you're probably not an expert in finance and capital raising and funding and investment. And so my first bit of advice would be find someone you trust who you can actually bounce things off. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's in a professional capacity where they're a corporate advisor or whatever it is. It just means you find someone you are comfortable with, you you believe has your interest at heart in what they say and and talk to them about your plans and how realistic they are and how they should go about it. Um, you, you need people who understand the markets or you can waste a lot of time not going anywhere or ending up with the wrong people. Um, you know, I've seen plenty of cases in the past of um, companies that have ended up the wrong people on board and maybe they got the first raise away and then maybe it's very difficult um, or, or they didn't raise the amount of money that they were hoping for and they probably could have if they'd gone around in a different way. So absolutely trusted advisor is key. Um, assuming you, you've ticked that box and they're helping you, it, it comes back to honing that message and your value proposition and, and uh, presenting who you are and just doing it as many times as you can. Every, every opportunity to present your business is valuable, no matter how negative or positive the response is, because you get the opportunity to practice, you get comfortable doing it, you get feedback. And as I, as I said earlier, when you, when you chuckle, I think it's about kissing a lot of frogs uh, as you go around trying to work out where the best sources of money will come from for you. Great advice. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, um, Martin, and hopefully 2021 is a lot kinder to you than 2020 may have been. And um, yeah, good luck with the fund for the future. Thank you, Ainsley. Thank you, Deb. And good luck to yourselves in 2021. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Martin. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.